This morning we continue our series in Paul's letter to the Galatians. We've come up to chapter 3, the verses 21 and 22. Galatians 3, verse 21 and 22 is our text. And to give that background, we will start reading at verse 10. Hear the word of God. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is the hardest thing to do in life? You could argue that the hardest thing to do in life is to come to terms with your own limitations, to understand them. We are not able to understand our own limitations. Typically, we make two mistakes. The first is that we believe that we have limitations, but no one else does. So we live in a state of constant comparison with others. We regard them as more talented, more blessed, more holy. They don't seem to struggle with the same issues we do. They don't seem to commit the same sins that we do. 
They seem to have a lot more willpower than we do. So we feel inadequate. The other mistake is that we believe that we have no limitations at all. Theologically, we might confess that we do, but practically, we do not believe it. We think we're doing rather well in our walk of faith. There are no outstanding problems in our life that we're aware of. And so when we do compare ourselves to others, it is to look down on them. Maybe not consciously, but there's always some form of comparison with other people going on. Isn't that true? So we feel overly confident in our own adequacy. So in in both of these cases, we have not understood our own limitations. The people in the first case think of their limitations in the wrong way. They think they consider themselves to be inadequate, but not in the way that actually matters. The people in the second case think that they're completely adequate, and that's not right either. This morning, we hope to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper proclaims a very different message to us. It proclaims our total inadequacy to keep any of God's commandments perfectly. Our text this morning does the same thing. It says that the Scripture actually imprisoned everything and everyone under sin. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so this morning we are not here simply to reflect on our own total inadequacy. We are here to see Christ and his total sufficiency. During this time of Advent, the time before Christmas, we remember that Jesus was born as a human being. He was born so that he could live the perfect life that we never lived. He died the ultimate sacrificial death to take away our sins. He died and bore the punishment and is dying that we should have borne. Everything points to him. And so the Lord's Supper this morning calls us to confess two things, our total inadequacy and Christ's total sufficiency. So we've been reading through the letter to the Galatians, and so far in our passage, Paul has consistently drawn our attention to the promises of God. He's made it clear numerous times that God's Keeping God's law plays no role in our salvation. Everything is about God's promises. Then in verse 21, he asks the question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And you would be forgiven for thinking that by now the answer should be yes. Yes, it is contrary. Of course it is. After all, if the only way to be saved is through the promises and you cannot be saved by the law, then clearly the law must be contrary to the promises. And that's why it comes as a pretty big surprise that he then goes on to say, certainly not. And again, it's this very emphatic formulation, certainly not, absolutely categorically not, a very emphatic thing to say. Why does he do that? Why does he say that? Well, it makes sense once you... Remember that both the law and the promise come from God, and God never contradicts himself. God's intent was always to live in communion with his people. The law was given to them to regulate that communion. 
So in that sense, the law and the promise did not contradict each other. They came from the same place. In fact, the law promised life to all who would keep it. Paul had already previously quoted from Leviticus 18 verse 5, where God says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. But the problem is that man, by his very nature, is not able to keep God's law. If he could, if he could even partly, then there would be two ways to live in communion with God. Then there would be two tracks that you could follow, one for grace and one for works. And then the law really would be contrary to the promises of God, simply because grace and works are mutually exclusive. If you are saved by works, then grace is out of the picture. So you can't go by works and then also have grace. They're two separate roads in a sense. But the law cannot do this. Paul writes, if if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So he's implying that the law was never designed for this thing, this kind of thing. People are, are sinners by nature. People are not able to live in communion with a holy God. The law can regulate this communion, but it cannot give life. All the law does is reveal our disobedience. But the law cannot give us unblemished life in communion with God. So from that perspective, what he says in verse 22 makes perfect sense. He says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The scripture obviously includes the law. The scripture, in fact, is everything that the Bible says about life and communion with God. And the law acts as a fence around that life. Think about the Ten Commandments. It has a lot of you shall not in it. And that's the problem, isn't it? It's a good fence, but it's still a fence. Every time that you do something, the law has something to say about that. It's a little bit like being surrounded by traffic signs. Yes, they regulate traffic, but they don't empower you to drive well. They just tell you where the boundaries are. They tell you when you've broken the law. And in the same way, the law of God teaches you what life and communion should look like. And it can regulate that life to a certain extent, but it cannot actually give you that life. So the law does not lead to the promised life of eternal communion with God. Yes, there was communion with God. Yes, it was regulated by the law. But it was a communion marked by constant transgression, constant purification, constant forgiveness. It was not marked by successful, unblemished law-keeping. And the same is true for us today. So the law cannot be a parallel track to life and communion with God. So in that sense, the law is not contrary to the promises. At best, it could expose sin and so lead people to confess and to rely on God's promise. It showed people where life was to be found. So the law is not contrary to God's promises, but instead it points us to God's promises. It points us to God's promises by highlighting our total inadequacy. 
It demonstrates clearly in our lives that there is no other way to be saved than through faith in Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ alone. So for that reason, as Christians, we should never rely on our own morality as a way of being right with God. We should not rest in our own law-keeping when that very law-keeping has always been a demonstration of the impossibility of sinners to live with a holy God. If that's how we try to live, if we live by comparing our holiness with other people, if we settle for a relative holiness, we will never have true communion with God. We will never enjoy true fellowship with God. We will never be truly right with God. All that comparison does is put the more religious slightly above the less religious, only in terms of outward appearance. But it does absolutely nothing for permanent salvation or deliverance from sin. That is why it is so humbling for all of us to come to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper calls us to confess this one thing that we all have in common, which is our utter inadequacy. It calls us to confess our inherent inability to keep God's law, no matter who you are. This is the great leveler. It calls us to confess that we have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and are still inclined to all evil. But it does more than that. It also calls us to confess Christ's total sufficiency. Our text says that the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now think about that in terms of of Christmas, which is coming up. We are in the Advent period now, the, the time in which we anticipate and remember the coming of Christ. Think of what the angel Gabriel said to Joseph. He said, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. It means Yahweh saves. So it's not just any kind of faith that saves. It is not just relative morality that saves. It is not just good intentions that save. It is faith in Christ alone that saves, faith in his perfect life, faith in his sacrificial death, faith in his total sufficiency. Jesus was not self-sufficient. Jesus lived in constant, obedient dependence on his Father as a man. And he did keep the law perfectly. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He makes God's promises possible. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them, as it says in Hebrews 7. So today we are celebrating the Lord's Supper. The bread represents his body, which is broken for us. The wine represents his blood, which is poured out for us. And that testifies to our total inadequacy. We are all, all hopeless cases. 
We are all hopeless cases because it took the death of the Son of God himself to redeem us. And in that death alone, there is hope because that death was totally sufficient. How sufficient? Canons of Dort say this death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sins of infinite value and worth, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. Not just your own sins, not just the sins of one person, not just the sins of one person relative to another who might be perceived as less holy, but abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. That is so much more than you could have ever done for yourself. So come to the table. Come to the table to confess your total inadequacy. Come to the table to confess Christ's total sufficiency. Come. Amen.